Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. This is the last last episode within chapter 4. And it is it is right after the final right after the final parable of the kingdom, but he's not finished. Uh, he's not finished with with what what he's not finished with articulating what's happening in his own ministry about the kingdom of God. He has not finished. Last week we looked at the last of the kingdom parables, the parable of the mustard seed, and we saw that on the surface the parable is telling us that what appears to be small and insignificant that is, Jesus and his disciples as this very small kingdom movement will result in the kingdom of God. This in itself is, is quite miraculous to think that one individual with a group of 12 followers would begin what would spread over all the globe. Think about it. It's quite miraculous. We saw, however, that this explanation of the parable of the mustard seed was not its primary meaning. And what I attempted to get at last week was that what Mark was doing was through his reference to Ezekiel 17, he was saying that the birds of the air, which is representative within, within that parable within Ezekiel of the nations, the birds of the air are going to be able to nest within this planting that God will plant when he brings Israel out of exile. So we had in Ezekiel 17 this parable of a planting that the king of, the, the king of Babylon was going to plant, and God said, I'm going to root it up. It is not going to take hold. But then he said at the end of it, I'm going to, I'm going to plant something, and it's going to prosper. It's going to succeed. It's going to bear fruit. And it's going to result in all of the nations saying, the God of Israel has done this, right? And then joining in. They'll come into this kingdom. They're going to come and nest within the branches of this kingdom. This is going to happen when, when God brings uh, Israel out of exile. So that's, that's the context in which we have it within Ezekiel. We'll see that that is the context in which we will see uh, this great deliverance taking place once again. It's going to be within the context of Israel coming out of exile. And that's what we'll see within the Gospels uh, as a whole. This is, if you look at every one of the Gospels, they present this great salvation that we are experiencing in the Messiah as the, the time when Israel comes out of exile. And then we as the nations participate in that. Jesus, as we have seen all along, is saying that now, that during his ministry is the time when Israel is to come out of exile. They are going to come out of, as, as their representative, he is going to bring them out of exile. He is the messianic king. He is going to lead his people triumphantly into the land to conquer the land and set up his kingdom. It may not be to us, this idea of, of coming out of exile doesn't mean that much to us, right? We don't think in these terms. But for the Jew in the first century, and, and, I, and, and even Jews within this century, they're still thinking about what it's going to look like when they come out of exile. 
It's just that they should have come out of exile with their Messiah. Okay? But they're still thinking in these terms today. The idea of a return to the land accompanied by the Davidic king becoming enthroned in Jerusalem, judging the nations, and the Lord returning to his temple. This occupied the minds of every serious Jew in the first century. Those who read the scriptures were all looking for it. When is this going to occur? I suggest that these things were on the minds of Jesus and his disciples as well. When is that great moment when Israel will finally come out of exile. She is back in the land, but she is still being ruled over by the, God, by the, the kings of the nations. Right? Rome is still ruling, and Israel has not come out of exile. You look at the situation in, in the book of Ezra. They've come out of exile. They're back in the land. They're starting to rebuild the temple. But he says, we are slaves. How can this be? They, they're coming back into the land. Well, I, I suggest that, that what Ezra is saying is that even though we're back in the land, we are still in exile. And we're still waiting on God to come and create this seed, the seed of Jew and Gentile in one man. This is occupying the mind of every serious Jew in the first century. And Jesus and his disciples. Jesus, in the words of Mark, is saying that these things are truly being fulfilled in himself. To summarize, Jesus is bringing about the promises of God to Israel and for the nations in himself by doing what Israel and Adam had failed to do. And this is what it means for Jesus to fulfill the scriptures. After all, what Abraham was promised was a family consisting of Israel and the nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is what, they are, this is what they're looking for. Right? When are all these things going to come to pass? When is God going to bring the Gentiles in? And what, what we'll find as we read the Gospels is that most of Israel had lost focus on this, this great seed, this great, uh, this great ingathering of the Gentiles into the family of God. And they were concerned about their own nation and their own temple, but not for the sake of the nations. And this is actually what is, what is behind this, this next episode that we'll see in the calming of the, of the seas. As we transition to the final episode in Mark 4, it's important to keep this view to the nations in mind. It has already been a theme of at least two parables, but really of all of them. It's like saying, for God in this way loved the world that he sent his son. But it, it's not explicit within this text. So John, John makes it very explicit that, that what Jesus is doing is actually for the world. In this text within Mark, and, and I'm going to try to make this try to make this clearer than it is at this point, he is implicitly saying this is the time when the nations are going to come in. And he does this, it's very subtle, the way that he does this in this parable and then into chapter 5. There's a transition here away from the parables in this final portion of chapter 4. But what I suggest is that 
that what we have in this next little episode is an enacted parable. It's not a word parable. It's something that Jesus, as a prophet, will enact within his own ministry, within his own deeds. As we will see in Mark, as a whole, Jesus, like the prophets of old, will enact God's workings in parable, in his own life. Think of Isaiah chapter 20, where he goes barefoot and naked to show how Israel will go barefoot and naked into exile, right? He looked like a fool, but this is what he did. And what, what is he doing? He's saying that, look at what's happening to me. This is what's going to happen to you, Israel. Assyria is going to take you off into exile. You're going to be barefoot and naked, and you're going to have a chain around your neck, and you're going to be, um, they're going to, there's going to be this caravan, and they're going to take you into Assyria. Into Assyria. Think of Ezekiel engraving Jerusalem on a brick. The Lord tells him, go, go take a brick and engrave on it Jerusalem and put up siege works against it and a mound and battering rams to show how Jer Jerusalem would be besieged and overthrown. And many, many more parables that the prophets actually enact within their own ministry. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing in his why should we expect Jesus, as the quintessential prophet of Israel, to be less symbolic in his actions? Or for Mark to hide within Jesus' actions parabolic meaning? He does it. This is what he's doing, and I'll show you exactly how he's doing this. What we see here is an enacted parable, similar to, at the end of the, closer to the end of the book, um, chapter 11 or 12, he curses a fig tree. He comes along and he sees this fig tree and it's out of season anyway. It's not supposed to be bearing fruit. He sees the fig tree and he says it's not bearing fruit and he curses it. This is, this is largely symbolic. We, we don't quite understand this world that, that, that's, that Mark is creating. But this is symbolic of the cursing of the temple, right? So he's enacting with his own, within his own deeds and, and words what is going to happen within Israel. This particular parable in, in deeds is orchestrated to tell the disciples and us as readers something about what he is planning to do and what will ultimately come about as a result of his ministry as portrayed within the Gospel of Mark and the New Testament as a whole. Let's read the story. So in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, we read the following. On that day when evening had come, and this is the day when he had been speaking in parables, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
what is this story about? We might go to history and say, uh, well, the Sea of Galilee is notorious for its windy storms. They will blow up all of a sudden due to its location. It's like 700 feet below sea level. It's beside these mountains, and, and, and so these storms are, are very likely to come about. Uh, suddenly, they arise suddenly, and, and they swoop down over the mountain, and they create, they create a real problem for the sea. And that is exactly what's going on, but that is not the explanation of the story and why it is included within, within Mark's book. Here we have Jesus napping at the back of the boat when one of these storms blows in. The waves are such that the boat was filling with water, and yet he sleeps. The disciples wake him up, and they ask, don't you care that we are perishing? He awakes, he rebukes the wind and the sea, and it ceases. He then turns the question to them and says, do you still not believe they become even more afraid, and they say, who can this be that even the wind and the, and the seas obey him? But what do we make of this story? What is it that the disciples are not yet believing? Is it simply to show us that he is God in human flesh? We might think so. We might say that his disciples just didn't quite recognize that he was God in human flesh. And then we might look down our noses at them because it's so obvious, right? We often think of Jesus in this manner. We think, can anyone do this except God? And, and the answer is no, right? So this is, or someone who is, who is God's prophet. We often think of Jesus in these terms. Is he God or not, right? And this is, this is what occupies a lot of our mental space. While this is an important question to ask, and we, we answer it affirmatively because this is how John and Paul uh, both answered it. Uh, John says that through him all things were made, and without him was not made anything that, that has been made. And Paul says that um, uh, everything consists in him. He holds the whole universe together by his powerful word. While these things are very important, and it is true indeed that he is divine, this is not the point of this story. That's not exactly what they are failing to believe. It's not that they can, they can say, okay, you're a God. Now we've done it. We've believed. And then he pat them on the back and say, good job, fellas. Now you finally recognized. That's not what's going on here. What they are not believing has more to do with Jesus' vocation, his mission, his calling to be the servant of Isaiah 53, his redemption of the world, right? This is what is, he's getting at. And the more you think about this, the more it, may, it will make sense. What they are not believing has more to do with Jesus' vocation. What is Jesus called to do? Because this is what he's been saying. He's been saying all along, I have come forth to preach the kingdom of God. This is why I came forth. This is my mission. I've come to bring Israel out of exile. And here he has his dense disciples who are not getting it, right? And this then serves as a parable for what's going on in their own lives. They're not seeing that he is able to calm the wind and the waves. And I'll show you what, what's going on with that in just a moment. They are not believing in Jesus' vocation, his calling to be the servant 
king of Isaiah 53. And crucially, they are not believing their role within that calling. He had already appointed them as apostles to preach. What are they going to preach? They're going to preach the kingdom of God. But yet they are not believing. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing yet. And this makes all the sense within, within, the, within the context of Mark. They're, they're sitting back like, you know, we're hanging out with this guy. We like what he says, but they're not getting what he's doing nor what they're supposed to be doing or what they're going to be doing. Because if they were believing in his mission, they would have known that they would make it to the other side. This is crucial. Why are they, why are they afraid? He's with them in the boat. He has a mission to accomplish, and he's going to accomplish it. And they're afraid they're going to sink. Right? He's going to accomplish it. And this is why he can look at them and say, why do you still not believe? Mark has been showing that God is acting in Jesus to fulfill his plan for Israel and the nations. So even though, in a sense, they are not believing that God has come to dwell in their midst, this is not the point of the enacted parable. The story, as are many of them, is fraught with background. Fraught with background. So we read these stories and we think, well, that's simple enough. They don't believe he's God. Simple enough. But we know, if we, if we think about these stories, we know there's something more to them. This is what I mean. They're fraught with background. You're like... Is that all he wants us to know from this? And I say, no, it's not, because they are fraught with background. They have a more subtle meaning than is shown on the surface. Right? And most of the time, if not all the time, it has to do with the way in which Mark is alluding to or quoting scripture, or any of the gospel writers. We don't have to divine it. We don't have to be geniuses. We have to soak ourselves in the stories of Scripture that bleed through onto the canvas of these stories in the New Testament. We have to fill our minds with a scriptural story so that when we read these stories, they come through to us and we hear them. So what's going on in this story? And how does Mark tell us that the faith his disciples are lacking is actually the faith that he will fulfill the promises of God to rescue the world through the Messiah, the Son of God? How does Mark tell us that? Remember last week, uh, it, was, it was so providential. In Psalm 65, uh, Psalm 65, when Chris read, uh, by, awesome, uh, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains by uh, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, right? Do you hear it? What is happening here is that he is comparing the waves of the sea to the peoples, the nations. The psalm is talking about a time when God will rule over and subdue the nations. He will bring the roaring of their waves to an end. He will still their seas. He will stop them from their howling. We see in Psalm 2, that's exactly what's going on in, in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Right? 
what does God do? He puts his king on Zion. He, he installs his king, and he says, this is the one who is going to bring these nations to heal. And this week, Psalm 2, Psalm 66, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your, are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Who are your enemies? The nations are always the enemies, right? The nations are the enemies. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. Who rules by his might forever. This is about when God becomes king, this is what it's going to look like. All the nations are going to come, and they're going to submit themselves to the king. And the scriptures are talking about this, and Jesus is saying, the time for this to take place is now. Now is the time for the kingdom of God to come. And this means that the nations are finally going to be subdued and come to know Israel's God, albeit in a strange and mysterious way. And it is this that they are not believing. So by alluding to this psalm, it's not all that he's alluding to, but by alluding to this notion of the nations being represented as the raging waves and Jesus calming them, stilling them, he's saying that he's going to do this to the nations. He's going to bring them to hill, and they will come to know the God of Israel. Israel had expected had expected the Messiah to come, raise an army, and destroy them. Jesus says, no, this is how it's going to happen. And then he'll go to the cross and give his life as a ransom for many. That's how it works. That's what I mean by the strange and mysterious working of the cross. That's how he's going to bring the nations in. And they will come to know the God of Israel. As an aside, this is precisely what Abraham believes. And this is what is counted to him as righteousness. What does he believe? He believes that he will receive a family. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as in the covenant. He made a covenant with him. This is what justified Abraham. He believed that God would make a family. And this is what the disciples are not believing. This is much different. This is much different than saying, oh, I believe that you're God and that you can save me from my sins individually. Okay? It doesn't exclude that. But I, I say that we should place that within this context of God is redeeming the whole world in his son, the Messiah. And then, within that context, he does this by forgiving sins and welcoming each of us into the family, right, who have faith in the, in the Messiah. But how else is Mark getting this point across to us, that the disciples are not believing that now is the time for the Gentiles to come to know Israel's God? Where are they going? Where are they going when they get into the boat? Within this story... We only know, we haven't read chapter 5 yet, if we haven't, we only know that he's going to the other side. But anyone who knows the geography of that time 
knows that they are going to a land largely inhabited by Gentiles to the other side, right? That's where they're going. We find out soon enough that it's Gentile territory, for there we find there are pigs, people are raising pigs, and Jews do not eat pigs, nor do they raise them, right? They are going to Gentile territory. So this detail should perhaps lead us to think that Jesus is and has been telling them that he has a mission to fulfill. There is a planting of the seed of Abraham that consists of Jew and Gentile. The lamp will make the message visible to all. All will come to the light of the message of the kingdom of God, even the Gentiles. There's coming a harvest, which will be the judging of all the nations. And all the birds, all the birds of the air will rest in the shade of the mustard plant, indicating that the kingdom of God will incorporate the Gentiles, the trees of the field in Ezekiel. In this story, too, we are told, again, by allusion to scripture, that the nations, the Gentiles, are in view in this story. We hear echoes within this story of another story. Who else sleeps in a boat while the sailors battle the waves? Jonah. Jonah sleeps in a boat while the sailors ba battle the waves. Who else is being sent to a Gentile nation with a message from Israel's God? None other than Jonah. That rebellious prophet who, like Israel, though he knew God was, was abounding in steadfast love, despised the people to whom he was sent and only begrudgingly went after his death and resurrection episode within that story. He was sent to that people who, depending on how you date the book, would either destroy the northern tribes of Israel or, would, uh, or had already done it. He was sent to Assyria. Jonah had been given a mission to the nations, and the nations would listen, much to Jonah's disgust. And this is the heart of God, and this is the heart of this story, that one like Jonah is here, but he is not rebellious. He is not like rebellious Israel. He will go to the, to the nations, and they will come to know Israel's God. This is the heart of the story, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this is precisely what is being foreshadowed, enacted within Jesus' parables. We, among the nations, were not plan B. We often view it within that, through that lens that, that somehow he came to Israel, they didn't believe, and so he just had to go to the Gentiles. This is not the case. And with this enacted parable, he is teaching us through the veiled metaphor of the wind and the waves that this has always been God's plan to save the nations. The nations are mankind. And as long as mankind has gone wrong, so the Lord will seek after mankind. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can stop the nations from raging. We should back up for just a moment and ask ourselves an important question. What is our role within this? Are we to sit back and let, let apostles do this? 
right? Oh, did, did this ministry just somehow stop when the apostles died? Or is this a mission that we in the Messiah also inherit? This unbelieving, unbelieving attitude of the apostles might also be seen in us. When we make it about ourselves primarily and not about God's plan to bring in the nations, we begin to think that God wants to just make our plan succeed. For us to help little old ladies, sick dogs, do all these things is all that it's about, and then God will just bring his kingdom in. I submit to you that we have inherited in the Messiah the same ministry that the apostles also had. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We are ambassadors, beseeching everyone, as though God were beseeching through us, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And, this is, and he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and has committed unto us the, the ministry of reconciliation. I submit to you that we are still under that obligation and in that calling. We are the ones through whom God will call the world to account. And he asks us not to be unbelieving, but to believe.